This morning I invite your attention to the Psalms chapter 2. This is a great Psalms in regards to the kingship, the royal kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note that the uh, scriptures are written to us oftentimes, especially from the Old Testament perspective, in dark sayings, in parables, in things that are hidden, secrets, mystery. And yet, they are revealed for us in the New Testament. You know, when I think about the continuation of the church from one generation to another, I think about the, the propensity or the possibility of, what, from one generation to another, losing sight of what we have dear today. And the reason for that is because while a lot of things are new to each generation coming, there's nothing new in the Bible to whatever generation exists. So as long as we hold fast to the Scriptures, no matter what future lies ahead of us, we are assured that the truth of God will remain. If you think about it, over centuries, the Word of God has not uh, taken a back seat. It remains the authoritative rule among the kingdom of God uh, and in His people uh, since the, the apostles first set out, Acts chapter 1, from the days of Pentecost, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, the last verse of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul said that he preached the kingdom of God and those things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was given liberty under house arrest and there he preached the gospel of God and His kingdom. So having said that, I'd like to read for you some portions in the Word of God from chapter 2 of Psalms. One of the reasons why I like to look at the Old Testament in terms of the gospel kingdom is because a lot of it's revealed in the Old Testament as, and, and it is prophesied concerning the kingdom of our God. And uh, we're going to see here um, in our text today some of the possible ambiguity that we may have regarding the kingdom of God. You know, what is it? Where is it? When is it? How is it? You can ask just about every question under the sun. Somebody's disturbed somewhere along the line about the kingdom of God. We can take two particular individuals in the New Testament and see immediately they were very much full of ambiguity when it comes to the kingdom of God. We had Nicodemus on one side and Pilate on the other. Nicodemus was bewildered. We know that the kingdom of God was on his mind because the Lord addressed him as such. Remember, the Lord is omniscient. He knows what's in our mind and in our hearts. And it's not so much Nicodemus having a question for the Lord. It's more the Lord Jesus Christ addressing the concern in his own mind. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. While Pilate, on the other hand, was looking at this man before him in the judgment hall, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, remember He was born King, but the King, if you will, from heaven, but He was crowned King ultimately, but He asked the question, Art thou a King? And Jesus said, Thou sayest. Yes, He owned up to it. He bore witness that He was in fact the King of the Jews. And Pilate, of course, He questioned what is truth. After the Lord said that he that is of God heareth God's word. He that is of the truth hears God's words. And Pilate, absorbed in his own physical, literal, political, prestigious, majestical, built on money kingdom of his, he said, what is truth? Because that kingdom was not founded on the principle of the unadulterated Word of God, the truth of God. That kingdom was not built on Christ, as Brother Tom related in his prayer, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You know? So, isn't it amazing that the church today is built on 
truth. It's not built on a great big depository of money at the bank. It's not built on familiar uh, ideas that we all enjoy as if we were a sorority of some sort. It's not really built on some vocation where we all share in a certain pursuit this time in, you know, in our lives. No, our church is built on things that we really can't lay hold of in terms of uh, tangible items. They're built on principles, truths. Not philosophy, principles, truth. Time-honored truths that have stood the test of time. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, we often look at the church as walls, you know, how beautiful it is. You know, my father gave so much money and he bought the carpet and all this kind of thing. But that's not it. Uh, Paul amazingly referred to the church as the pillar and ground of truth. What was the backdrop? The backdrop was Ephesus and the temple Diana, the goddess Diana. And they say that this temple was built with like 120 columns all the way around it. And evidently, mayors and, and senators and big wheeling people from all over the known world of Asia at that time gave money to the Temple Dionysus and each pillar represented a certain financial uh, gift toward this temple. And Paul, with that backdrop, says to a young minister fighting for the truth of God in his generation, he said, the church is the pillar of the truth. And so that's important for us to know as we gather together here today in a New Testament church. What truth what I would like to present before you today is the truth of the reign and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in chapter 2 of Psalms we read this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why is it that they do? wonder what they've been dealt with in terms of have they been wronged by God? Has God offended them that they should be angry and that they should be full of rage? That word rage in the Hebrew actually means tumultuous assembly. Does that sound familiar? Those who, Paul Peter would say, riot in the daytime. What is it that they imagine? And why do they imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Now see, here it comes where this host, this mob, this rage of heathen people who imagine a vain thing, it is spoken of in terms of specifics. Why they're against the Lord and they're against the anointed. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. I find it very ironic that the mob rule in this world, the mentality is to not only oppose God, but oppose worship. And the question we may arise in our minds is, why do they oppose worship? It goes all the way back to Pharaoh. You remember when Pharaoh was the king there in Egypt and the Lord's people were in bondage for over 400 years? And they went before Pharaoh... And Moses' request, according to God and from God, was let the people go three days' journey in the wilderness that we may sacrifice. That means that they may worship God. And you know what God said to Moses? He said, I am sure, I am sure they will not let you go. Now, it's not me saying that. God said it to Moses, I am sure. And that's exactly what took place. Pharaoh would not let God's people go three days' distance in the wilderness to sacrifice and to serve Him. Later on, we find out in the book of 2 Thessalonians, which is a really neat chapter about the end of times, that the Antichrist that will eventually be revealed, who is not revealed yet, remember now we live in the age of the spirit of Antichrist, but that man of sin has yet to be revealed. Paul said, because he corrects the questions and doubts and the misgivings and the disorder of the Thessalonians on the first letter. See, they thought Jesus was coming. And so they quit their jobs and ended up you know, living off somebody else's income. And Paul had to write a second letter, much like Peter did, to kind of correct the problem that was not in the letter, but in the way the people received the news about the coming of the Lord. And he basically said the coming of Christ is not going to come until first there's a falling away, and secondly, the man of sin be revealed, or the Antichrist. Well, that never has happened up to this date, so Christ's coming is still yet future. 
That is His second coming. And I guess, well, I wanted to say that is because this characteristic in terms of the Antichrist, it says concerning Him that He opposeth God and He opposeth worship. Isn't that interesting? So they go out of their way to oppose those of us who like to gather together in our own little church without regard of making it known to other people. In other words, we don't, we don't want to bother anyone else. We just want to meet in the quietness of a habitation that God has promised that He would be with us and not bother anybody else. But they don't like it. They don't want it. They oppose it. And that's what's, in, that's what's gathered here in Psalms 2. The heathen rages and the people imagine a vain thing, and the kings of the earth, the people in power, the people that have position and prestige, the movers and the shakers of this world, they set themselves, they set themselves with purpose and design against God. And they take counsel, like Pilate and Herod took counsel, they agreed, they came together, enemies before time made friends over the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. They took counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. Never doubt the fact that man by nature wants to live his life so selfishly that he wants no, no idea, no definition, no remembrance of God Almighty or His commandments. He wants to be totally free. Sin, the essence of sin... The essence, if you boil it down, if you took a pot and you could boil sin down to its very essential ingredient, it would be self. It would be pride. Selfishness. You know, that's how horrible our hearts are. And then he says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Isn't this interesting? Now, I want you to get the picture here. God is upon His throne and sin has entered the world. You know, God has a reason to be upset. Wouldn't you think God created the world? This is the argument that He uses throughout the book of Isaiah. It's an argument that He says uh, time and time again. In one particular passage, He says this concerning His own creation. The 49th chapter. Excuse me, the 45th chapter. It says it there too, but this is one I want. He said, I have made the earth, verse 12, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I've raised him up in righteousness and will direct all his ways, speaking of Christ. So, I think the Lord conveys this idea throughout the Scriptures. There's multiple places, like Psalms, uh, Isaiah 46, when he says, I only, I even I am God and none else. There is none else. And so God is jealous about His name. He's jealous about His glory. He's jealous about the fact that He created the world. And man has destroyed it, literally, in a sense of bringing sin into His beautiful paradise. And as a result, Satan and man have corrupted themselves and God's order of creation... Nevertheless, in spite of all that trouble, you know, because of that, of course, God cursed the earth and we are under a curse. That's why there's famines. That's why there's death, disease, destruction, wars, rumors of wars. That's why there's all kinds of terrible things going on in this world. If you could look at the world from God's standpoint in that particular day, it was covered with darkness, the darkness of Satan. The kingdom of darkness, it's referred to. And... We have the Lord, He's sitting in the heavens, He shall laugh. In other words, He shall have them, the Bible says, in derision. And I often like this verse to those um, days when, remember Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And George Bush was the president. Now this is George Bush the senior, 41 I believe, and he was the president. And he addressed Saddam a different way. He addressed Saddam as Saddam. In other words, he was mocking him. He was basically laughing at him. Because old Saddam Hussein, who invaded Kuwait, by the way, for oil, you know, he thought he could do it without and get away with it. There's no accountability. 
But he forgot one very important thing. Christ is ruling. He's ruling. And he's going to reign and continue to reign. And what does the Bible say about that reign? He'll reign until every enemy is under his feet. That's a very popular Old Testament scripture that is used very often in the New Testament. Well, anyway, George Bush, he, was, he, he wasn't like jumping up and down about it. He just drew a line in the sand. And that line was crossed. And therefore, Saddam was extricated out of Kuwait by a strong arm of the military. And that's a beautiful picture, if you will, small analogy of the darkness that has prevailed in the kingdom here on earth, Satan's kingdom. And the Lord Jesus up, uh, and God the Father had in mind to set in order His Son into this dark and perverted world to extricate, if you will, Satan from His own dominion. You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, He was born somewhere over there, right, in Bethlehem, somewhere on the countryside of the Judean hills. And what did the country shepherds see? What did they see? The Bible says the glory of the Lord shone round about them. In other words, the light of God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so the light of God invaded Satan's domain. The darkness covered the earth, but guess what happened? God designed. That's what it says here in our text when it says, He shall sit in the heavens and shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet, notice what He says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And this is the prophecy regarding the coming of the light of the Gentiles. And those that sat in darkness, what did they see? They saw a great light. It was the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven who invaded, if you will, this time world. And I'll draw another analogy, a military one again to this, because I often re- reminded of, of how uh, when, um, I think it was 1944, Normandy invasion, Hitler's kingdom, all through Europe. I mean, what did he do? He took the, the Netherlands, he took France, he took Belgium, he took Poland, he was fighting Russia, he was bombing England. I mean, he took a series, Yugoslavia, he took all, all those countries over there in Europe. And if, if you could look at a map, the way they drew it, the historians back in those days, it, it was blacked out. It was like the kingdom of darkness under the reign of the Nazi power under Hitler's strong arm. But what happened? You know, it's interesting that from 39 to 44, that's a long time, that he was creating this devastation. And it wasn't until 1944 that the Allied invasion took place where? At one place, Normandy, on the beaches of Normandy. And it acted like what? A spearhead. This is what I wanted to get to. And it's as though there the Lord Jesus Christ came... uh, from heaven, if you will, born of a virgin, right there in Bethlehem, and it was a spearhead as he invaded the kingdom of darkness. And soon, soon, that kingdom was spread, even to this day. Now, in that particular analogy, it was only a year or so before uh, the Allied invasion culminated in victory. That is amazing. And so, by the grace of God. Again, another evil empire was allowed to exist and reign only temporarily. Because why? Because Christ is reigning and ultimately He will put every enemy under His foot. Every enemy. And then He says, I have set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. Now what's interesting here is this. That He defines it limited way. Holy hill of Zion. And I'm talking about the kingdom of God. And so I want us to take a look at this Uh, from a standpoint of this. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ is a king anointed. That's basically what he is saying here. He said, I have set my king upon my holy hill. And if you look at uh, the center column reference in your Bible for the word set, it is anointed. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is that special, sanctified, set-apart one that God designed 
from eternity past, His anointed. Now, in this scripture here, I will refer to 2 Samuel 23, which comes at the end of David's life. And I want you to see this prophecy regarding the anointed one and how important it is. I'm going to throw a lot of scriptures your way this morning if I can move quickly because I want to try to establish this point. And if there's any question, I'll be happy, more than happy. These are the things that I've spoken of earlier, like last week, uh, month, when I mentioned that when we study the Bible in a setting like this, we have a desire to stir your pure minds. And if there's any question, what you do is you go home and you read and study the passage. And you learn. Because I can't in 45 minutes, if you allow me that much time, talk about the whole thing, can I? I could, but it wouldn't be the right thing. It wouldn't be expedient. But notice this. Here's David, basically on his deathbed. He said, David, the son of Jesse, and the man who raised up on high the anointed of God, of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said. So David is basically saying that I'm anointed. But who was David? David was the son of Jesse, but it was through David Jesus Christ would come. That's why when he entered Jerusalem, he entered under the great uh, uh, lauding of the son of David. The son of David. Have mercy on us, the son of David. He came riding upon the colt of an ass, the son of David. The anointed one of God. And notice what it says in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. And this is a beautiful picture of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hold that and keep that in your heart as we continue on. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Again, speaking of a a literal place called Zion. Now, you remember about a month ago we talked about Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. And we pictured there the great temple of God. The holy hill of Zion. And that was a beautiful temple. In fact, we talked about a lot of the imagery that was in the temple. The, the, the columns, you know, with the palm trees embedded upon them. The great border wall that was like, you know, 12 feet deep. And the, the surrounding, uh, the whole length and breadth of the city. By the way, there's no understanding there in the temple of the height. And so... Interesting enough, with all that imagery that surrounds that temple, the most important thing that, that, that is conveyed in that temple is not a literal, literal, physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. It's a perfect temple. It has perfect sacrifices. It has perfect priests. It has the perfect person as the man who there enters the east gate, who is the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven, you remember? And He's closed that gate. And only He can open that gate. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father by Him. But the point is that if you got all the civil engineers in this world together, right here, you got the best engineers together. You can go down over here in some of the colleges and just get the best civil engineers. They couldn't build what Ezekiel prophesied. They couldn't do it. It's impossible because it's a spiritual thing, not physical. It's a spiritual thing. And so we think when we read about the holy hill of Zion, we're speaking about the manifestation of God's universal spiritual kingdom. There's two things there. It's really neat. You know, the Lord said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's not talking about the church, is he? He's talking about the spiritual kingdom of God. And yet we go over there in Acts chapter 14, I believe it is, and we talk about entering the kingdom through what? Much tribulation. So there's another entrance into that kingdom, but it's physical in nature. So what do we learn from that? 
we learn that while there is a domineering influence in the rule of Christ over this whole world, He has a place called His own where He is manifested as King. Christ is not manifested as King in the halls of Congress. You can go on down to Washington. You can read. You can listen to the senators. You can listen to the congressmen. You can listen to those uh, candidates that are running for president. And you're not going to learn from that that Christ is ruling and reigning in the hearts of His people. You're just not, you can turn on TV. You're not going to catch it. So I want to share with you the fact that there's two aspects here. That Christ's rule is universal. You know, go into all the world and preach the gospel. How is it that he could say that? Because, notice the following verse. I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. In other words, the day in which Jesus was birthed from the tomb... He, 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 he literally was coronated king of his kingdom. And as a result, he rules. And he will continue to rule right now in this day in which we live, during the church age, as king of kings and lord of lords. And every enemy will ultimately be beneath his feet. And so, the point is, and what I'm trying to convey is, this spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God. Same thing that we did with the temple from Ezekiel's vision. Now I'm going to turn to Psalms chapter 103, I believe it is. The Psalms are great as they mirror what is being said in the second. Okay, we're in Psalms 103. Notice verse 19. He says, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. But now notice in the 22nd verse, Bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. So we have in one aspect the universal kingdom, which is unlimited, which is universal. And then we have in another aspect where it says, His works are in all places of His dominion. So there's a locality, if you will, where there's a manifestation. And so what we read about Acts chapter 14 was a literal place where we press into, where we work to get into, that with the violent take it by force, where we believe to enter into, that we have to turn away from the world, that we have to take up our cross of self-denial and enter into the church kingdom or the church which is the manifestation of God's universal kingdom. And the reason that all took place is because of the victory at the cross. And that's what he is saying here. I will declare the decree. In other words, I will declare the word with authority. And God has all authority. He has all authority. He is the one that sent His Son into this world to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. He has all authority. Because from before the foundation of the world, He so chose... In the, in, in the council halls of eternity, among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, He coveted together to uh, save His people from their sins. And He took an oath. He took an oath of Himself. He didn't agree with you on it. He agreed amongst Himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And in the course of time, and according to His divine purpose... He sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, under the curse of sin. This is the beauty of salvation, all encrypted, if you will, in Old Testament language. Now, the important thing to think about as a side note is that these prophecies back in the Old Testament were difficult to understand at face value. And many people, including not only Nicodemus, but the disciples had this aura of ambiguity when it came to the kingdom. I remember in Luke chapter 24, for instance, that the disciples along the road of Emmaus were talking to Jesus Christ. They didn't know it. And they assumed as much that the kingdom would be restored at that time. 
But Jesus stopped them in their tracks and He preached and taught to them out of the law, out of the book of Moses, out of the prophets, out of the writings, out of the historical books, all the things concerning Himself. He, and then he, he gave them revelation. He opened their eyes. He taught them the Scriptures. He taught them. We thought, we thought it was He that should restore the kingdom of Israel. We were thinking physically. We were thinking literally. And I'm telling you, that's a danger. That's a danger. And you're going to fall in a great trap if you think literally that particular if, in, in those terms. In fact, they continue to have ambiguity throughout the disciples' life. Not only about the death of Christ, not, but also about His resurrection and the kingdom of God. Even, even up to Acts chapter 1. Before the Lord ascended into heaven, he, they asked the question, is it, is, it, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for the renewal or the restoration of that once beautiful kingdom under the Davidic throne to be re, uh, ignited, regenerated, if you will, during the days in which they lived. I mean, I probably would have thought the same way, wouldn't have you? I mean... Jesus had all power. He could calm the troubled sea. He could raise Lazarus from the dead. Jairus' daughter, he raised from the dead. I mean, there's no doubt from my mind standpoint, I would have thought just like Nicodemus. He's seen or hear or heard about at least the miracles of the water turned into wine at Canaan. And so he was immediately searching out Jesus and he came to him by night. What's going on? But there was a blockage. There was a blockage in his mind. And the blockage was this. Here we have one who it looks like is performing all these divinely uh, inspired miracles. And on the other side, he looks like an ordinary fellow from Nazareth. Isn't this the carpenter's son? This is the son of Mary. And so there was a great blockage in his mind in terms of the kingdom. You see? The same thing that the disciples had. But interesting enough... It, it was it, it, this ambiguity that they had, which is evident in the Scriptures on more than one occasion, is done away with, you don't hear any more about it, after the day of Pentecost. What happened? Well, the Holy Spirit descended, He was poured out, and He gave the disciples knowledge and wisdom. He guided them into all truth. And that's exactly what took place. Now, I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. So that what I'm saying here is just not, you know, Brother Steve, you're just preaching a particular aspect of some man's theology. No. No, I'm not. I'm actually preaching what the Bible says. Now, watch this. We had mentioned last month about the temple, this spiritual edifice that you cannot build physically, but is to be understood in a spiritual way as it applies to the church. You remember the closing words of that great vision. And it, perter- it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jehovah Shammah, which literally means the Lord is there. And so the New Testament church is a church where the Lord makes His habitation, that He is pleased to dwell among His people. It's not something literal, is it? It's something phys- uh, excuse me, spiritual. I mean, we talk about spirit, heavenly places, spiritual places and heavenly places. We talk about things like faith and love and, and wisdom from above. We're not talking about physical, literal things, are we? Now, there are certain things that we do called ordinances that reflect and remind us of the death of Christ and how we ought to live right today. But in terms of their physicality or their tangible element, there is nothing. We're built on principles and truths and words. That's how important words are. Every word of God is pure. And I might add, it is important. Now getting back to what I said, I'm going to run to Amos for a minute. Amos chapter 9. Here's a prophet, and I'm going to call him a big prophet with few words. He lived in the day of Isaiah. And he prophesied against the northern kingdom. He prophesied against Dan and Ephraim. They were the two tribes of Jacob that were very bad. They were the bad boys of the flock. Now, they were, you know, they're the individual sons of Jacob, they all had to answer for some of their own particular sins. But in terms of a tribe, Ephraim led the way 
Hosea, that whole book of Hosea, another prophet, also speaks of the demise of the northern kingdom. God calls it through Amos an evil kingdom. The northern kingdom will fall. The northern kingdom will go away. Now Judah won't. The the southern kingdom won't go away. The northern kingdom will. And uh, the reason why it won't and the northern kingdom is contrasted with the southern kingdom because the southern kingdom uh, from its roots came the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ will be born, born, excuse me, right? He won't be born a an illegitimate child, will he? If he was born from the loins of Israel, the northern kingdom, which was done away with under the Assyrian power to the north, prophesied in these prophecies, then Jesus would have been born an illegitimate child, but he was born from the lineage of Judah, from the loins of Judah. And, might I add, that was the summation of the sons of Jacob. That's why God is so upset with the northern kingdom because they took Bethel, the house of God, that place where Jacob met the Lord, where God descended and met with Jacob, wrestled with him. Now watch this. He referred to it as the house of God. But they corrupted it. They corrupted it, you see. God was put out with them. And now he says this in verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon this sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saying that I will not utterly... saying that. But now watch this now. Saying that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There's the distinction. So he's going to utterly destroy the evil kingdom, but the house of Jacob he will preserve, saith the Lord. But now watch this. This is important. And I'm going to just skip some of the things that I wanted to share with you. Well, I'll hit verse 9. For lo, or he's making the announcement, Behold, I, I will command, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. So the picture is like a, a sieve and the house of Israel or in the sieve and he's just shaking them all over the world. But watch, watch this. In other words... He's literally destroyed the nation of Israel. Now, the uh, nation of Judah will be brought under great captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, but they will be delivered. Their king lineage will be preserved through Jehoiakim. Anyway, here we are. I'm going to sift Israel among all nations. Verse 9, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. And in the Hebrew, that word grain is stone. That word is stone. And it's not a picture, of course, of Christ. It's a picture of the living stones. And so, in other words, while He's sifting the nation of Israel among all nations, yet He will save the remnant according to God's sovereign grace. Those little stones. Peter's name is a pebble, if you will. A little stone. He said in verse 10, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overcome nor prevent us. And so I thank God for Romans chapter 11, 1 through verse 5, because what it teaches there is that God will have a remnant, an election according to grace, among the kindred of Paul the Apostle. Who was Paul? Paul was an Israelite. And what he is saying there is that even though the northern kingdom would come to a demise, yet there are people among them that will be preserved by sovereign grace. And now he comes to this, because all this is cast within the light of the hope. You know, how miserable it might have been when Amos, the prophet, the the king, or excuse me, the priest, the priest in this particular chapter, I think it was Zechariah or Amaziah, the priest said, he was castigating Amos. He said, he, he told the people, don't listen to Amos. Amos was a false prophet. That was the priest, so he had a lot of weight. But Amos' words rang true. And he promised not only a destruction from the northern tribe of, from the, the Assyrians upon the northern tribe of Israel, but he also promised restoration, renewal, hope. And that's always a template in the Old Testament, the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and here Amos and other books that reflect great captivity and great destruction. And yet there's a promise of restoration. Thus, 
many today look at that promise as being something literal. They can put their finger on it and say, see, the kingdom which is yet future will have a literal and a physical restoration of Israel. This is what they say. But they're reading it in a physical light. Now watch this. We come down to verse 11. It said, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. In other words, Amos is promising a resurrection of the tabernacle of David again. Now, you have to remember that after the destruction of Israel to the north, you know, the the temple was in the southern part in Jerusalem. And it wasn't yet another couple hundred years when Nebuchadnezzar would come down and destroy the temple completely. I mean, he took away the gold. He took the mercy seat. He took the Ark of the Covenant. He took it all back to Babylon. You remember Hezekiah was up, upbraided for what he told. The, of course, now we're getting back through the Assyrians. But anyway, let me move on because the prom, this is the point that I'm making. The promise of the restoration of the tabernacle was never fully restored the way it was designed and characterized in the Old Testament. Yes, it came back under Zerubbabel. Much smaller though. Was, was, it had never the significance of Solomon's temple. Never whatsoever. And that didn't last long as Daniel himself would prophesy another destruction that would come. But anyway, here's the point. The prophecy that Israel will come back. He said, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins. I will build as it in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Notice that. And all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and the hill shall melt. This is all figurative language. And we might think that... That is all something future. Now I want you, I'm going to take you now to a council in Jerusalem. And this is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. Let's hear what James has to say. Here we are now, several years beyond Pentecost. Things are really taking shape. Although amid tribulation and trial and testing. Here James stands up, verse 13, and he's answering, saying, Men and brethren, hearken Unto me, verse 13, Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He said, And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. He's going to quote Amos now. He says, After this I will return, and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. I will build again the ruins thereof. I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called saith the Lord who doeth all these things there it is right there it is fulfilled in one of those places that the psalmist in 103 tell us is where God's dominion is he's speaking about the church of the living God we are the answer to Amos's prophecy. And just one of many that recount this beautiful thing. So we go back to our text in Psalms chapter 2. And we have about 15 minutes just for your information. Because I know this is tedious. He said this, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son this day, have I begotten thee. And so now he's, he's hinging this dominion of God in Christ on the resurrection. Christ came, of course, like that spearhead, and He invaded the dominion of darkness. Light has come to the Gentiles. He will, through this great work, restore the tabernacle of David, which has been fallen down. He will once again renew, only He's doing it in a spiritual way. He said, I will declare the decree, in other words, my oath, and the Lord hath sworn that 
Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now that word begotten, to most of us, may immediately reflect begetting of children, as in birth. That's exactly what it literally means. There's many different ways that you could convey that, not only literally, but also in a Jewish sense or in a figurative sense. That's the way the New Testament uses it. I invite you to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and let's just rehearse something that John received from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is John chapter 1, in terms of the Lord Jesus. He said, verse 5, And Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. The first begotten of the dead. So here he's talking about Literally, the firstborn from the dead. And that's why, of course, Jesus is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 as the first fruits. And that's a play on words that goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And you remember there they had the Feast of Tabernacles. And what did they do? It was the time of the harvest. They went out into the field and they brought the first fruits of the field back. And they had a big festival. Because what was it representing? By the way, those first fruits were designated unto the Lord. He owned them. They belonged to Him. Now in the Bible, like in places like Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord's people are referred to as first fruits. But Jesus is the first fruit. He is the first fruit. But we're like Him, you see. But... Notice this, he's the first begotten of the dead. Now, again, Steve, well, that still doesn't answer the question. He's the first begotten. Maybe, you know, we still don't have an understanding of that word begotten. No, he's the first fruit from the dead. In other words, he was the first one that ever rose from the dead in bodily form and was glorified. Now, there were other resurrections in the Bible, but not like his. His was the first Well, what about those in the Bible in the Old Testament that went to heaven like Elijah or like Enoch? Well, they went to heaven in a spiritual sense, not bodily. But they still went based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had He not risen from the dead, Enoch and Elijah, you know, God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the things that are not yet. You see, He knows the end from the beginning. And based on His oath, His promise, His decree that I have begotten thee this day, He's decreed it from all eternity. He not only knows it, He assures it. He assures it because He's God. And when Christ rose from the dead, He fulfilled all that. Not only the mind and purpose of God, but all the prophecies relating to it. In Colossians chapter 1, this is neat because you get to go home and read all these. He says this, verse 18, He is the head of the church, excuse me, the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There it is. There it is. He is the first begotten from the dead. Now it's used in a very special sense in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, That He gave His only, what, begotten Son? And so there is a different word altogether, but it conveys singularity or special or only. He's the only Son. That's what that word conveys there. Same word in the English, different in the Greek. Sister Marcia, different in the Greek. We know it's different in the Greek because we can read the Greek. But anyway, I want to move on. And, And I've got 10 minutes left. He said in verse 7, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, verse 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now, it sounds like, wait a minute, I thought, Brother Steve, you're not talking about a literal, physical kingdom. I'm not. I'm talking about his possession. I'm not talking about land. I'm not talking about cities, states, places. I'm talking about people. We are His possession. There's no doubt about it throughout the Scriptures. In fact, in that great chapter 
in Ezekiel, the Scripture says concerning that one, He says, I am their possession. He's mine and I'm His. We belong to Him. These are the abodes. These are the many mansions that we read about in John chapter 14. These are the many chambers that we read about in Ezekiel's temple vision. These are the people of God from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation on earth. You see what I mean by universal kingdom? That God loved His people out of every nation. Now what does He say? He says to His disciples, Go forth. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. By virtue of what? By virtue of the fact that He's the firstborn from the dead. You see, we have the right now to preach the gospel and to enlighten those who are the elect of God in the things concerning the kingdom. The things concerning Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did. He wasn't trying to make or populate heaven by his own meritorious works. But he was trying, excuse me, to persuade men the things concerning the kingdom of God. That's what we're doing today. He says, ask of me. Isn't that interesting? And he did. Did he not? When he prayed, when he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed to the Father, I will that thou, whom thou, of those who have been given to me, Jesus said, that, I, that they will behold my glory. And among other things, that they would be with him in glory. That he would be, excuse me, that they would be sanctified and set apart and preserved from the world, which receives not the Spirit of God. You see? The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light are separated in that sense. And that's why God says through the prophet John in the book of Revelation, come out from among them and be separate. In other words, reveal the fact that we are children of light and that we bear the spot of our Heavenly Father, you see. That's the problem with Israel. That text I'm quoting out of Philippians 2 goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. When the children of Israel played in sin among the heathen, you see. And it was ungodly. And God says, you're not bearing the spot of my children. And He rebuked him, And ultimately, He cut them off. The physical aspect of it. Was there a physical aspect of the kingdom? Yes, back there it was. And so if I project something in the future which is purely physical, I'm really doing a smackdown on some of the most important elements and principles that the New Testament clearly defines what the Old Testament signifies. I'm breaking down, number one, the middle wall of partition. It was through the New Testament gospel blessings and the mystery revealed through the gospel that the middle wall partition between the Jew and the Gentile is done away. What am I going to do in a literal millennial reign yet future? I'm going to separate them. Because the basis of that idea, and that's what it is, is to separate the church of the Gentiles from the Israelites. And God's going to give them another chance in a thousand year reign to get God on their own merits. God's going to give them another chance. That's the so-called literal physical element of a reign that's yet future. It does despite. It does despite. It's a smackdown to the fact that the middle wall of partition, that all of God's people are in one in Christ. Now, it also does other things too. It re-institutes Old Testament sacrifices. In other words, it takes the death of Christ and it sets it aside and reestablishes old Levitical priesthood duties because they're going to give Israel a chance to get it right. These are smackdowns to biblical truth that speaks in the book of Hebrews that that law service is done away with. That we are perfected forever by one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to stir up that nest from the Old Testament again, is to smack down the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ in some futuristic reign. Now, many brethren see this. Many good, solid brethren see a restoration of the Israelites in a physical, literal kingdom. And I might add, for the safeguard of several that I know, that there are two camps. You know, one is historical premillennialism and one is dispensationalism. It is the latter of which I refer to today that reignite this Levitical priesthood. The whole idea of the Ezekiel temple that was presented by the prophet was that the, that was that the temple that was to come in the days of Messiah was perfect. 
that it didn't need any help. It was finished. Perfect. And among, there's many other things that we could talk about in terms of that. Verse 9 in our text, it says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt break... Who is he talking about? Now this is interesting because this speaks of the work of the Messiah under his reign. He's reigning right now. What is he doing? He's calling men out of darkness, men and women, his daughters and sons, out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what he's doing. How is he doing it? He's doing it with a rod. He's doing it with a sword. He's piercing the hearts of his enemies. Those kings who before were, you know, angry with God, opposing God, at enmity with God, are now changed by the rod. He will smite them with the rod of iron and dash them to pieces. Let me just give you one illustration again, if I may, from the book of Isaiah. Let's go to 19. Notice what it says. He's speaking about Egypt. Now you remember Egypt, according to the 30th chapter of Isaiah, is spoken of as the world. You know, don't go down to Egypt. And that's for all of us today. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't go down for counsel. Don't go down for help. You know, Egypt, the chariots of men, the strength of of legs, the beauty of women, all these are figurative language in the Old Testament that refers to things that we can make idols out of. You know, it's amazing how the church in the New Testament today is looking to Egypt for help. They're looking for Egypt's innovations, ideas on how to get people into the church. They're skirting the issues of the truth of God and they're bringing ideas in from the world. They're in darkness. They're in darkness. See it for yourselves. I have. And it's enough to make you ill. It'll turn your stomach. It's like going to a rock concert in some of these places called sanctuaries of God. And this is an important point. Anyway, he said concerning Egypt, there's going to be an altar there. An altar in the land of Egypt. Notice this, and a pillar at the border thereof. Now, we're not talking about Palestine anymore. We're far, we're far south. We're, we're further south, are we not? We're in Egypt, but it's a figurative thing. Notice what he says regarding these people. He said, The Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. And shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. In other words, the Egyptians that he's speaking of will one day worship God. And the Lord shall smite them. He shall smite Egypt. And he shall smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord. And he shall entreat of them and shall heal them. And in that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Now I want you to notice... Who are they that occupy the tabernacle of God in our day? In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria and to Assyria. There shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. Isn't that odd? In that day, I tell you, you could be fuming. You would be fuming if you heard Ezekiah or Isaiah say these words in that particular day. You would be upset. It was like saying to Americans, Hitler's going to rule over you. You know, that's how upset they were going to be. Now, that's a lopsided, uh, that's an inverted application. But the point is that they were highly upset. The Assyrians are our enemies. How is it that they're going to be numbered with us? He said, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. So all three. Israel represent the third part. And that's another take on another particular scripture. We find these kind of scriptures throughout even the book of Psalms. You read for yourselves Psalms chapter 45 through 50. And you see how the Lord will smite the enemies with a sword. Isaiah chapter 49 The Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, will be referred to as the sword. My mouth, he says, is as a sword. And he will smite. 
He will, dis- he will destroy His enemies. How does He do it? He takes a heart that is wicked and sinful and He smites it. He makes it anew. He destroys it. He cleanses it, you see. And all that figurative language is used characteristically displayed among the prophecies set forth looking toward that great kingdom in which God reigns over. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, I'll close with this verse, which is really a beautiful one, because you might ask yourself the question, how does that help me? I mean, we're talking about, okay, the Lord reigns and He rules. Well, it's truth, number one. It's the truth of the Bible. We don't want to swerve from one generation to another without it, or we'll end up unrecognizable to our forefathers. We've got to hold these things dear to our heart. The fact is, it is important to us today. And He said to that one who's on the throne, right now today, kiss the Son, verse 12, lest He be angry and ye perish, not from eternal life, but perish from the way. How important is the way? It is very important. The way is the way in which God bears witness to Himself in a perverted world. Now, are you going to give up that territory to Satan? Because that's exactly what we do when we walk in that way. In in contrast to this way. This is the old way. The old path. God's way. This is God's way. This is the spiritual way. And if we walk in the course of this world, uh, according to the spirit of disobedience that works in the hearts of the wicked, we are off the way. We will perish from the way. God will devour us with the sword of His mouth. You see, the king is the king. And he not only smites his enemies by renewing them and giving them a spirit of grace, but he chastens them so that they stay fastened on his way. That's why we're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, as we see the day approaching. What did he mean there? Because of the perilous times that shall come. A lot of people give way. They can't handle it. You know, we belong to the Facebook generation. And quite frankly, I'm very disturbed that most of our brethren are more involved in politics than they are in the kingdom issues of God. Now, I love politics and I'll fight for my cause, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, I'm leaving it at the door. I'm going to promote King Jesus. I believe in His kingship. I'm going to vote for Him. Now, you can follow me to the polls and I'll tell you who I'm going to vote for, but I can assure you this much. Most importantly, I want to kiss the Son. Now that means that He's approachable. Because in the Western culture, we might not quite understand this idea of kissing the Son. And in the Song of Solomon, we, re- we-, we-, we read a lot about the lips of our Savior. His mouth is sweet, like wine. And we know when we think about Christ as our beloved uh, groom, we as a bridegroom, as a church, we are... Uh, in love, if you will, with Him. We are one with Him. He's one with us. We have a loving intimacy with our Savior. And so, even though He's King, on the throne He reigns and He has dominion over all, He speaks peace to His people. He draws us. He loves us with everlasting cords of love. He, he, he fellowships with us. He calls sinners such as we are friends. We're friends of Christ. You see, we can kiss the lips of the Savior. We are approached by Him and we are we can be approached we are approachable unto Him. We are at peace. We're not despised. You see this the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon spoke of this wonderful experience that she had with her love, the love of her life. And it's portrayed in very graphic language, I might add. But it conveys the spiritual and the mystical blessing, if you will. I say mystical in a like way, in a good way. A spiritual way. That we have communion with Christ. Somebody asked a great Baptist preacher once. I didn't ask them, they commented. They said, said, I'm not going to serve a God like you worship and you serve. This Baptist preacher just preached a sermon on the chastisement of God. You see, that rod, of course, in the Bible may mean more than one thing. It also means the rod of chastisement. 
And that man comes up to that preacher and says, I'm not going to serve no God like that. I'm not going to serve no God who's going to have a chastising rod against me. I won't serve such a God. And the old preacher said, I will. And I'll kiss that rod. I'll kiss the lips of my Savior. Because I love Him who loved me first. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about great fellowship. We're talking about communion. We're talking about intimacy with our Savior. That's what the church is about. We are the bride of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And we won't let the kings of this earth tell us differently. They may seek to shut the doors. They may seek to create fear in the hearts of His people. But you know what God says? I will rule until every enemy is beneath my feet. And at that time, He will, and at that time, he will deliver up the kingdom back to God the Father. That's what we read about in the Scriptures. But this kingdom shall last and we will continue to do the work. What is it that we're to do in this kingdom? We're to witness. We're to shine our lights. We're to preach the gospel. When the Lord Jesus Christ came on the shores of Galilee, He said the kingdom of God is at hand. He said repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I'm not going to wait till I reach heaven's pure world before I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and make it my way on earth. The heart of man deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. May the Lord bless you today.